0: What were the uh, subtle and the blatant examples of racism toward you?
1: Boy, I'm talking to you. I turn around, it's a cop car.
2: You guys shouldn't be here. Certainly the way I perceived it is, the reason you guys shouldn't be here is that you're not white.
0: The invectives the man hurled at both of them, saying white. You people here, why don't you go
1: back? I said, Look, you sell that home to a black buyer, and I will burn your house down.
3: Welcome to the Life of the Mind podcast, where our curiosity is explored for unique experiences and diverse perspectives. In the last episode, Jake Chaco, Raj Oza, and Tom Chaco shared about their experiences moving from India to the US and Canada in the 1960s. If you haven't yet listened, I encourage you to go back to the first in this three part series. Today, we continue their story of building their lives and careers here from the 1980s through the early 2000s. These gentlemen share candidly about racism they experienced personally and observed towards African Americans and other people of color. But first, another brief reminder of U.S. history to set the stage. Post-Civil War Reconstruction from 1865 to 1877, sought to bring Southern states that had seceded back into full participation in the Union and give former slaves rights to own land, vote, and even hold elected office. Many took advantage of this before Jim Crow laws Effectively stopped or severely limited these freedoms. Here's an interesting fact to demonstrate the Jim Crow era impact. The South elected Blacks to the U.S. Congress 42 times immediately after the Civil War until the end of the 1800s. Then there were zero Blacks elected from Southern states to the U.S. Congress until 1973. Demographic shifts and migration patterns cannot explain this lack of representation. In the 1970s, the Civil Rights Act of 1965 began to take hold not just in law, but in practice with more protected opportunities for people of color. And as we entered the 1980s, there were even more outward signs of hope for racial reconciliation. In the decade of the 1980s, more blacks were elected to U.S. Congress than in the entire century before 1970. In 1987, Clifton Wharton became the first black CEO of a major Fortune 500 company. Affirmative action was arguably a mixed bag in the end, but helped kickstart opportunities for African Americans in traditionally monochromatic industries and businesses. And television played an outsized influential role on American culture before internet and streaming later divided audiences. Some of the top TV shows in the 80s and 90s represented affluent, educated, and intact Black families succeeding in America. The Cosby Show spent five years as the number one rated show. The Jeffersons, Family Matters, and Fresh Prince of Bel Air were just a few others that broke the color barrier with widespread appeal well into the 1990s. Even with these outward signs of hope and progress, racial tension was still brewing under the surface. There existed informal, hard-to-enforce workarounds to anti-discrimination laws, particularly in the areas of loan and real estate. The war on drugs, as well as harsher policing methods to combat rampant crime, was seen by some as unfairly harsh and targeting towards the Black inner-city community. Racial disparity in incarceration increased as the number of Blacks sent to prison grew at a faster rate The number of whites. 39% rose to 53% of the imprisoned population between 1979 and 1990. Riots following the Rodney King trial in 1992 in LA were an outward signal to the world that the US was not yet the beacon of fairness or colorblindness we had hoped to be. Rodney King was the George Floyd of that era, except instead of choking, he was beaten by officers, and the officers were initially let off without punishment. Which led to the riots. So, it's under this mixed bag of hope and progress, along with roadblocks and challenges for people of color in the US, that we introduce today's episode. Jake Chaco, Raj Oza, and Tom Chaco will wrap up childhood memories and share more experiences as American college students and then adults building careers and families in a country still reckoning with racial justice. Here's Jake kicking off the next question
0: you know, through your growing up, which could include college or very early adulthood as well, uh, what were the uh, subtle and, if it happened, the blatant examples of racism toward you all start on a a subtle basis? It was things like, because there are so few Indians, they just didn't know where to put us and they hadn't seen us. And and I remember ending up in an honors physics class and the first day the teacher uh, asking me in front of the whole class do you belong here uh and 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 those kind of things i mean today uh they would assume indians belong there but back then they didn't know where where indians belong so it was it was subtle kind of things and very little uh, uh outward racism at least back in you know through my high school and, and college years. How, how about you, Tom? You were getting into more of the sports and everything. What, what were your experiences?
2: I should preface it by, by saying that you know the, the number of times of overt racism that I personally experienced or was aware of was remarkably small. And and, and I think it's a tribute to the US that you know, I'm a complete foreigner in this country. I'm definitely the other, but I, I didn't face it overtly, at least where I was growing up. The, one of the instances where i did and it still steered into my memory was that so you know westfield is this sort of upper middle class suburb of new york city and like many upper middle class suburban towns they have a they had a very good tennis team traditionally probably for at least several generations the high school tennis team was all drawn from the westfield tennis club which was this exclusive private tennis club. They, they didn't come out of the public courts. And, and so because of that, because the, the, the team members were always coming out of the Westfield Tennis Club, uh, the high school tennis team played their matches at the Westfield Tennis Club. There was no written rule, but it was certainly a rule uh, was that it was whites only, that there were no people of color at all in the club, and in fact, there were no Jewish people in the club, as far as I know. I, I, there, there might have been some, but but it was probably almost exclusively white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Probably not even very many Catholics in, in, in the club. So that 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 was the rule. But but the Westfield High School tennis team played there, and as long as all the players were from the Westfield Tennis Club, that that was fine. But so I started playing tennis seriously when I was twelve, and by the time I was a sophomore in high school. was starting to get you know reasonably proficient and so I had made the tennis team I was just one of the scrubs who wasn't going to play in any matches okay but you know we would go and see the team play at the Westfield Tennis Club and and I and I still vividly remember so you know our, our team had played the match I think we you know the team won the players essentially left left the courts but Warren Graves one other guy on the team, a person of color, so he was probably the only black African-American who, who was actually, I consider a good friend. So Warren and I would, would often, you know, hit together. So after the match was over, we started playing on the courts at the Westfield Tennis Club courts, and we must have hit for about 15 minutes. The groundskeeper comes over and says, you guys shouldn't be here. Mm. And you know, I, I don't know exactly what was in that guy's head or heart, but certainly the way i perceived it is the reason you guys shouldn't be here is that you're not white if if two white kids from the team had been hitting there whether or not they were club members they would not have been asked that so that 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 is seared in my memory that was clearly in my mind it it was because of race my own personal response to that was you know okay i i didn't take it as a victim i i I was just and and from that day on if i ever played any player from the westfield tennis club Mm -hmm. i'm a pretty competitive guy but my my level of effort went up significantly like i didn't want them to win a game much less you know win the (laughs) match
0: (laughs) that's a man with a chip on the shoulder and just fyi uh uh, tom the when we moved to the States, our, our, our parents, my dad, our dad bought a house very quickly, but there was a house in another suburb of Caldwell, New Jersey, which we really liked. And uh, we put a bid on it. The next day, we were told the house is not available. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it was happening at my parents' level, but that was obviously, in retrospect, racism as well. But uh, how, about, how about you, Raj?
1: Yeah, I'm glad there's several things you know that both of you called out. But I'm going to focus a little bit on some things that you've said here, Jake. In terms of the parents, my parents had this and still have this innate ability to just have be themselves very neighborly and have neighbors really pull them in. So I I'm not even sure that they in the early days really faced racism. Um, or even some of the microaggressions like the the, the groundskeeper that you called out Tom um, uh and again we didn't have language like microaggression in those days but I'm not even sure that they did but maybe they did you know and you know but soon to be a teenager I genuinely believe and I don't think any of this is blinders I don't think any of this is you know kind of revising history I genuinely don't think that there was racism, blatant or otherwise, directed towards me. Now, Evanston was exceptionally progressive. Um, it's the first city in America just recently that has enacted laws around reparations for the Black community uh, in Evanston. So you know, so that's a part of it as we move into these places. My parents always made sure that we were moving to places that that where education really mattered and so and i think the more educated you are the more cosmopolitan you are the more exposed you are to a lot of things then when that other comes in you can kind of say oh yeah okay um, so there was this sense while there wasn't the sense of racism there was this sense of exot- exoticism i guess maybe that you know that you guys are wow from india like like elephants. And, you know, it's like it's that type of stuff. You know, well-educated people and also relatively uneducated people, uh, adults and children. There's also this sense, now, I was not the eldest. So, often there would be a child in the family who might have been there before me. So, when we got to Wheaton, Illinois, some interesting things started to happen. So, the classroom... When I showed up in high school, eventually, I was in middle school and then eventually went to high school. My brother had already been there and he's brilliant. I mean, he's done like startups and this and that, you know, world-class engineer. So he'd taken a physics class with Mr. Sloan and it just like, it was the easiest thing. He might as well have been Newton, you know, just amazing. I show up and Mr. Sloan just expects me to be like my brother Nermo. And I was like, oh yeah. And I'm like, no. And after the first test, he goes. Are you really Nermo's brother? You know, so, so I was like, it should be that way. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, you know, they give you some benefit of the doubt. And then it's like, it's real, you're not that good. Okay, you're not that good. The sadder story is we lived in this wonderful part of Wheaton and just got embraced into this community. It was primarily an Italian-American community, but not exclusively. Um, a lot of Greeks as well. And our next door neighbors were grandfatherly to us. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful people. Um, you know, baked cookies, taught my mom baking, we'd be over there. It just it was, it was Norman Rockwell. I mean, it's just wonderful. And then we were moving one and a half blocks down, you know, the immigrant story, you'd buy a bigger home and a nicer home and all that kind of stuff. And our neighbor who loved us, I genuinely believe I can use that word. I know grandma did, you know, maybe grandpa did too, but he turns around. To my father and he said, are you selling the house? And my father said, Oh, we'll have to sell it to you know buy the new house. He goes, Okay. I said, look, you sell that home to a black buyer and I will burn your house down. Yeah. Wow. Wow. These are loving, wonderful, you know, after we moved to California, California. every time I go back, uh, you know, for you know meetings, you know, up in Evanston at the university, I'd always go by. And see, you know, grandma and grandpa, and she'd always have yeah. I mean, you know, a glass of milk and cookies. Yeah, these are my grand, these are actually my grandparents, not my proxy grandparents. Because my grandparents, my biological grandparents were you know aerograms. I'd see them in letters that come, came, because we weren't able to go back to India very often. We weren't able to go back to India at all uh, for many, many years for economic reasons. You have that punch in the gut, you know, that really. Is that possible? And it is. Oh, wow, thank you for sharing, Raj. And, and- yeah, In and, uh, one
0: observation, and then a uh, uh, follow-up question for, for both of you. know, I think because there were so few of us, and Raj, you used the word exotic, we were not a threat uh, in, in that sense. So uh, they embraced us. We didn't, we didn't feel it, right? And I'm going to get to what we thought about the African-American experience. But I actually remember uh my senior year in high school uh on this high school newspaper going to a John Birch society. For the listeners that don't know that society is still around. It's pretty much a white supremacist society. Uh, I went to interview them. I don't know what I was doing there. And the and the and the president of the the local order looked at me as did the other members, all the white men, uh, with somewhat amusement, but there were not enough Indians around that I was not a threat. If I had been an African American from Plainfield, New Jersey, it would have been more openly hostile. And I must admit, in retrospect, that 17-year-old self of mine was a better self than I would be today in a John Birch Society meeting. Mm-hmm. I, 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 like your story there, Raj, African Americans or Blacks encroaching on white neighborhoods were a threat. And you got that kind of a statement from loving people, right? So i uh, just fascinated by your experience with Evanston and then and, 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 and Wheaton and, and, and the Western suburbs of sh- Chicago. Um, what was your personal experience with, A, African-Americans, and B, did you delve into the African-American experience even at, at that point in time? What would be your perspective, Raj?
1: Yeah, uh, let me come back to the sense of my perspective of the African-American community, because you called out something about not being a threat, um, and that's the not word. But if we reframe it in, in, in a positive, what were we? And I think we were a curiosity. I think people were genuinely curious about us. And this is just coming to me now. It's an aha moment right now. I think we were genuinely curious about them. And I think that goes a long way. When people have that genuine curiosity, even if it comes from an uneducated place, even if it comes from that true word, you know, ignorance, right? I'm ignorant. I don't know. But you're really like, wow. As opposed to, I have a fixed sense of what you are. You know, I'm a John Birch guy, and I know what you are, Obama. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, okay, you know. So, I, I think, you, you know, you and now hopefully us, I think we're on to something here in terms of, huh, not a threat, but what's the opposite? Well, a, someone who, you know, we're curious about. That's such wise words. Like,
0: just being curious and open goes a long way, right? Thank you, Raj. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. I really think so. I've kind of written that down for myself. But maybe something we we you know work through later. You know, we said Canada kind of all white, one person of color. Evanston, this blend. Wheaton is like, what happened to Evanston? So America's not Evanston. Uh, America's actually Westfield. You know, because um, besides you know, uh, uh, my brothers, my sister, myself there was this one other family that I can vividly remember in terms of people of color is the Odoms. Um, and in my grade level, it was Johnny Odom. It was Johnny O. And I still remember the phrase, you know, on Saturday nights, uh, Saturday afternoons uh, at the football field. It's like, go Johnny, go, you know, Johnny O, go. Because he was just a gifted running back. So, like okay, so this is a new way of thinking about African-Americans, about, you know, Blacks is like, oh, they're athletes. It's not how it was in Evanston, but that's how it here you know, here here in, in Wheaton. So that was my kind of reframing all of a sudden in terms of how we Americans think of, we Americans as a whole may think of, have one lens into uh, the, the African-American experience. And then all of a sudden, it's shifted again when I returned to Evanston you know, to go to Northwestern. But maybe we can revisit that because I want to hear more of your stuff. Uh,
0: Tom, you mentioned your friend Warren Graves, but talk a little bit about how deeply did you get into the experience and maybe share with our listeners and with Raj about the church we went to, which is on the borderline of Plainfield, which is having race riot problems, et cetera, and, and, and that, that church. So just, just uh, share your experiences.
2: My life experience has been poorer because I didn't, I, I regret not having made a greater effort to get to know and and befriend and, and have interactions with African-American people. You know, it, it, in part, it was just the circumstances, but in part, it was I don't, I don't think I, I I made the effort I should have. What Jake was talking about, so almost from the time we came, we attended a, a church. It was a fairly conservative um, what would today be considered an evangelical church, and and like most uh, churches at that time was Lily White, and I, I they they were very accepting of our, our of our family, but I still remember what one of the older gentlemen there, um, you know, telling my dad, oh, it's it's nice to have you here. My my dad was also Jake. It's nice to have you here, Jake. But when are you when are you going back? You know, I remember him saying that, but. It's almost this idea of you're okay, but those other people, yeah, that they're not, they're not okay. So you, as long as you you get to know them, then you realize they're human beings just like you. But in the abstract, it's much easier to be a racist. And and I saw that in the church, but but you know, much to that church's credit, and and I you know, in my, my own perspective, it, it was it was the work of God is that over time, over the time that, that we were in there, that so that church was on the border of a, a very white neighborhood and, and the town of Plainfield, which had a much larger African-American community. You know, like 10, 15 years later, um, th- there were many more black people, uh, African-Americans attending that church. And so it, it wasn't through any policy change, but, eventually it, it integrated the way, the way it should have been. Any church should reflect the community that it's in. And it started doing that more over time. So that would be from, I would say, you know, the, the mid to late 60s to I, I would, maybe the mid 80s. So that 20-year period, uh, things did change.
1: In Wheaton, on several occasions, I remember my parents, especially my father, uh, being invited into churches to talk about India, now this gets back to that sense of curiosity. while there may have been a whole host of you know motivations intentions behind that, what I experienced you know sitting there watching my parents, especially my father interacting with the other adults was it really did come back to that place of curiosity. there was an element of love, uh, an element of interest, um, and a deep abiding Element of mutual respect. Um, so that was my experience of that. Now to make things a little bit tougher. Now it wasn't always that my parents uh, or that I was all that curious, uh, because as I was reflecting a little bit when you were asking earlier, Jake, about my experience of the African American experience, some rather difficult economic times uh, in America and for our family, and uh, so my parents uh, started. Uh, making Indian snacks and selling them at a university called IIT, not the IITs of right. India fame, but the Illinois. It's on the south side of Chicago. Right. Right. Um, and that's the so-called you know, tough side of town. Um, my parents would sell the snacks and then afterwards they'd sell snacks, all nice, lovely. But getting there from home required that we would drive through the south side of Chicago the minute that we got off of Lakeshore Drive, the first couple of times, we children were told, lock the doors. We knew what this meant. Black folks live here. It's not safe. Lock the doors. For the longest time, and perhaps even today, you know, this may exist inside of me, um, not, not as much exposure to the Black community you know, here in California. Um, and I say this with absolutely no pride and a great deal of shame. You know, see a black person coming down, black man, sorry, coming down one side of the street, especially if it's later in the day, I'm likely to shift to the other side of the street. What kind of a human does this? What kind of a human sends that message to another human?
2: It's interesting you you mentioned that, Raj, because the the so you mentioned also the South side of Chicago, so I did my postdoc at the University of Chicago, which is in Hyde Park, yes. which, as was described to me when I first got there, is it's surrounded on three sides by the ghetto and on the fourth side by Lake Michigan. So when I lived there, it was the first real urban setting I'd ever lived in. And I, exactly what you' described, I would do that. you know, as I was walking down the street, if I saw an african american male coming on the same side of the street i would anticipate this i would move over and I, you know it, it is clearly morally questionable at the very least wrong um it, did it keep me safer i you know I, I, to this day i don't know it, it it might have because of the the socioeconomic makeup of of that part of chicago but yeah, I've I, I definitely done that. I am I'm not proud of it, but I have done that.
0: Um, uh, both of you, thank you so much. This is just uh, such an honest, uh, bro- you know, sometimes brutal conversation. And one of the lessons I'm gonna take away is we should always stay curious uh, and threats are real, but a lot of time perceived threats are not real threats. And when you conflate perceived threats or stereotypes, uh, so such that you suppress your curiosity, pushing some of the humanity away, right? And whether it's the John Birch guy or your neighbors, as long as we were not a threat, the curiosity came out, and that's in all of humans, I believe, right? It's this other thing we have to watch out for, and it's just a just a, a great insight, if nothing else. Um, what
1: wonderful, what wonderful sense making of you know, yeah. Tom and my stories. Thank you, Jake. It helps yeah. help me kind of pull back from. Getting so emotionally invested in your story, Tom, and in my own story, and just kind of step back and make sense of all this. So, thank you.
0: We're all humans. Okay, this has been a great conversation, about Raj and Tom and I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, but our journeys continue.
3: This podcast is sponsored by the Oak Guild Institute. Our society is heavy on opinions, but light on wisdom and scarce on time. At OGI. We seek to learn from unique experiences and diverse perspectives across many topics. We believe dialogue, even if contested, can open our minds and build compassion towards those with opposing viewpoints. Currently, we are a fledgling organization with a podcast and salon-style conversations bringing people together in person and online. Please visit oakguild.org, O-A-K-G-U-I-L-D dot O-R-G, to learn more and get involved,
0: our journeys continue. We came to North America, the United States. We got educated, and we set about uh, starting our careers and starting family. So let's let's just talk about the meat of our working years. So I'm going to take us through the period, you know, maybe starting with uh, from Reagan through the first Bush, and then Clinton. And then, then the second Bush, if you will, right, and that was the United States. Arguably, in terms of structurally for African American race relations, it, it seemed like things were moving linearly. Were we perfect? No, but things were moving in a direction towards well, what the uh, the founders of the country would say a more perfect union, right? On the other hand, there were more and more Indians coming, so I would argue we were less of a curiosity, and if not a threat, more of a, oh, are they taking jobs away? And at the same time, we had the rise of globalization, which is, not in many senses, good. Uh, and then we had 9-11. So it's it's against that backdrop where the three of us spent much of our careers. So uh, what was your impression of race relationship uh, in, in, in North America de- during that time? Do you agree with what I said? We- with respect to a African Americans and B comment on
1: Indians, so let's start with you, Red. Okay. I'm going to have to give a little college story before we get to the work story. Sure. If that's okay. Well, you know, so I'm back. I'm back in Evanston now. You know, uh, I'm at Northwestern and you know, doing whatever studies. This that that's all fine. When I'm in, at Northwest, my, my freshman year, there were four other Indian kids in my class, undergrads. Four. By the time my daughter showed up at Northwestern, I think her suite at the International uh, Residential College had four out of six or something like that, and one from India, no less. Like, wow. So things change in a hurry. But when I'm there, there's just four of us uh, my freshman year. My junior year, it pops up, actually. You know, the numbers start to increase, I'm like, wow, something's going on here. But not you know, to you know, post Y2K. Those kind of numbers were you know, crazy, crazy numbers of shifts. I befriend this young man, his name was Sudhir, and cool guy. He's a freshman, I'm a junior, um, we become really good friends. The summer between junior year and senior year, he passes away in a hit-and-run accident. Nothing to do with racism, just those tragic things that happen in this world. You know, His girlfriend tells me about it, and I'm just in shock, and I actually don't know how to cope because I'm an Indian raised in America, but we didn't have all the rituals. We didn't experience deaths, but I didn't know how to grieve. I had these kind of vague understandings from studying and listening to my parents and stuff that, you know, we don't shave for 13 days or something like that in our tradition. Um, So I decide not to shave uh, that entire senior year. And so I get this really unruly beard, it gets all, my beard gets, you know, when it gets long, it gets all real kinky and stuff. Um, And this gets right to the heart of the matter in terms of race relations, when now there are more Indians, the white-black dynamic hasn't changed that much. And Northwestern is on the lake in Evanston, and it has a road, Sheridan, that just kind of goes up and down. So I'd be wor- walking up and down, you know, from South Campus to North Campus, North Campus to South Campus. And in the fall, I'd be walking down, and you know, the white kids, you know, would say, "Hey, you know, you know," the the Indian kids, you know, would say, "Hey, hey, Raj, you know, and the black kids would kind of ignore me, and, and it was probably mutual. I'd ignore them, you know, unless I knew one of them, and I didn't know many, but I knew a couple. And then it starts to snow. In Chicago, the snow starts to come down, and you start wearing a knit cap. Uh, and my beard's getting longer, and my eyes are still very, very angry sad. And I'm walking up and down Sheridan. The white kids ignore me. The Indian kids, often some who knew me, ignored me. And the black kids say, hey, man. And it's like, wow what's happening here? I'm still who I am. I'm changed because of Sudhir's death. And I have this mask on, you know, this beard, and not a COVID mask, but this mask that allows me to all of a sudden be seen differently by people. And you start to understand what race relations, not racism, because I don't think anyone was overtly racist to me by not saying hello to me. But there were other places, because this is also post Ayatollah Khomeini, and I lived off campus, and uh, people would come up to me when i take the L, you know, scream at me, you know, you know, go back to Iran, right? They're like, I'm not Iranian, you know? Others would come up to me and would want to sell me dope. And they're like, well, but I don't even drink, you know? It's like, you know, so people don't know you they misunderstand you and then even more tragically one time i'm walking from our dominic's you know a safeway a trader joe's whatever a grocery store and i have you know a couple of sacks of groceries and again this is winter time i'm walking you know from dominic's to my apartment and i hear from behind me on the road someone shout hey boy what's in those bags no one's ever called me a boy, but I grew up in Chicago, and I know what that means. It's a pejorative that white people of any age, a kid calls, a, you know, during my time, a kid would call an older black man, boy. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. it's maddening. But I didn't think this was addressed to me. I'm just still walking around. And then this car pulls over. I said, boy, I'm talking to you. And there's really nobody else. It's nighttime. There's nobody else there. I turn around. It's a cop car. And I'm just like flabbergasted. I said, huh? And he says, don't hum me, boy. What's in those bags? And I'm like really confused. And the cop comes out of his car. He's just a year or two older than me. He's probably, you know, 21, 22, 23. He's probably just as scared as I am in that moment, but he's got a gun, you know, uh, I just have groceries. And I start to get a sense of what's going on. He thinks I'm a black kid, he thinks I'm a perp, and I said, and I put on my best Northwestern academic voice. And I was like, "Excuse me, officer, you know." What bags? What are you talking about? He looks at me and he's like, wait a minute, because you know, I don't sound like a black kid. Uh, and he's like, you know, do you live around here? Um, kind of trying to regain some of the power. I said, yeah, I, I live right here. He goes, you know, show me an ID. And I'm thinking to myself, what ID do I show him? Because this is all about power now. Yeah, it's about black. Yes, it's about white. Yes, it's about Indian. Um, but I decide to show my Northwestern ID, which you know carries some weight in the world, especially that part of the world. And he looks at it, he goes, "What are you I doing?" Mean, now, Raja, as as opposed to just your driver's license, you mean? Exactly. I purposely, okay. I, I choice, you know, very, very thoughtfully, in a very unthoughtful way, decided to flex my muscle, right, as small as it is. So he goes, what are you doing here? I said, officer, I live here. The real question is, why did you pull me over? You pulled me you over. You said that? Yeah. 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 You, you actually said that to the officer? Yes. It, it was probably somewhat foolhardy, but it was also uh, informed by some of the anger of you know, having lost a friend. It was informed by you know, studies of inequality in the world as a whole, not just in Chicago. Uh, man, I was definitely informed by Chicago itself. I mean, you can't live in Chicago without seeing this stuff. It just comes into you. It's just how you choose to respond to it. But anyways, I, I said, uh, you pulled me over because you thought I was a black kid, didn't you? And he, he's kind of, you know, reeling a little bit. And he says, look, why don't you go back to your little campus, go back to your apartment, unless you want to come downtown with me? Uh, it switches again. The power equation switches again, and obviously, I have no appetite, and no capability of dealing with, you know, being in a, being in a, a squad car. Uh, so, you know, I go my merry way. You know, this is the America, not just of a Republican president, Reagan, not just of Mayor Daley. You know, uh, I think at that time it was probably Harold Washington who was the first black mayor of Chicago, but Daley's imprint on Chicago was really strong. It's not about Republicans, it's not about Democrats, you know, I mean, these guys played their own power games. And I'm not sure that they always consciously understood that there were kids, you know, our age, who are hearing this, and trying to figure out, what do we do with it? You know, how do I respond? You know, when I'm walking up and down Sheridan and, you know, there are white kids and black kids and Indian kids. How do I respond, you know, when a cop pulls me over? How do I respond as a cop, you know, when I see somebody? And this all goes into it. It's in the water all of a sudden. We drink it. And, you know, sometimes we're nourished by it. But, you know, quite often we're, we're poisoned by it, too. So, so yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of my Reagan era and then, you know, proceeds. But I want to hear your stuff here, guys. I'm
2: trying to look at that, the story, that the really compelling story you just told, Raj, from the perspective of that police officer. Uh, and, and, you know, again, this goes back to my University of Chicago experience is, I suspect what's running through his head, and as you mentioned, he's probably scared as well, is in that climate, where he sees the crime being, crimes being committed, they're often committed by African Americans because of the socioeconomic dynamic so he's already bent in that direction and so he makes all kinds of assumptions just like I do and 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 so that you know and that dynamic sort of continues unlike you I doubt I would have been as courageous to call him on it
1: courageous or Uh, stupid because it was stupid also
2: right 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 you know and and that must be the calculus and, and and this is you know i i've always wanted to enter into the african american experience because i think it is so outside of my experience but that's the easiest place for me to enter it is i try to think of my son what would i think if i had to tell my son if you get pulled over this is how you should behave i never have had to tell my son that but i think that is Every African American parent's experience is: if you get pulled over, these are the steps to take, and and that's the easiest. You know, it's the easiest way for me to personalize that experience. Otherwise, it's it's okay. I'm just going to be in the in the avoidance. As long as I don't grow that beard, I'll be fine. I won't be mistaken for an African American. So,
0: thank you, gentlemen, and uh, and uh, you know, from my perspective, both the good and the bad. Uh, Part of this is intellectual, you know, Uh, it just seemed to me that African-American race relationships are linearly improving uh, because I was into my career now, starting to climb the so-called corporate ladder and evidence of uh, diversity training. In that time, it was affirmative action training, and I'd have opinions on that, but also get more sensitive to that. So the the country as a whole is progressing, you know, where my wife, Sushil, started working on Wall Street, there were uh, very few people of color and I started to see it increase. So uh, America, right or wrong, I thought was moving towards more perfection. And strangely, uh, uh, we talk about power a lot here. As I was progressing in my career, there's more position power. So in many senses, Somewhere there is where my identity started to shift from I'm an outsider and need not to be obvious and just earn it to I've earned it I'm as much American as anybody else. Somewhere there uh, that shift happened in my identity uh, as an American solidified. Right, uh, but but in many senses, I have to unfortunately admit it was because of the power position. I thought again being. Ignorant and uh, arguably willfully, I thought African American race relationships were were, were improving, uh, but but Indians uh, just because there were more of us, we were becoming more than a curiosity. And uh, I'll I'll just start off the, the 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 next question I have for you, but I'll start with myself. We had moved to Chicagoland by this time. Uh, we had started a family, and our two oldest daughters went to uh, to grade school in this lily white. Uh, Suburb of Hinsdale, which is where we were living, and the people were very, very nice. But they would, in our little cul-de-sac, they would say things like, uh, "We're so glad here that you're here. You know, you add some diversity." Because again, when they knew us, it was a community. Uh, yet there's this story. Uh, there's this incident that happened uh, right after our youngest daughter Tara was born. So she was w- walking with another Indian friend, Tuli Patel, and we had a pretty large golden retriever. And they had the baby in a stroller and they went to the park and there's a, a, a law and there are some signs that the dogs should be leashed in the park, but nobody leashed their dogs in the park. And our golden retriever uh, jumped up on an older gentleman who was having a picnic with his granddaughter and ate the, uh, the man's sandwich, uh, but, but more than eating the sandwich scared, uh, scared the daughter and obviously the grandfather. Oh my gosh! Uh, the the two women, uh, Sushil and Tuli, uh, could uh, finally wrested control of the dog back. But the the invectives the man hurled at both of them, saying, "Why are you people here? Why don't you go back?" It started to become a lot, lot more blatant, right? Uh, because there were more Indians moving into these neighborhoods. A little town of Hinsdale, which is in the western suburbs near Wheaton uh, the, the the police wouldn't they ticketed uh, Sushil, uh, and and they wouldn't hear her side of the story my, my Indian kids, Indian American kids were growing up in an environment different than the America that I came into where I was more of a curiosity. you could start to see that uh, uh, that our people's groups were a little bit more of a either a social threat or an economic threat
1: yeah there is something about about uh numbers isn't there (laughs) um because it's it's also i I was thinking about my parents like you know why were they this way i think innately they're just that way where they just mix right in but i think when there's all of a sudden a larger community you don't have to go out of your community you can kind of stay in your little community and just you know, it's it's ghettoization, it's emotional right. ghetto, maybe, or a cultural ghetto. So, yeah.
0: Tom, y- your career was in academia in Canada, right? And uh, Raj, you work uh, um, at, at HP, which is the paragon of Silicon Valley, and the West Coast is more diverse. Talk a little bit about your workplaces, then maybe comment on the African-American part of that diversity, if you will.
1: Um I always dreamed of being a full-time academic, so I want to hear your experiences first.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, you know it, it, as far as the Indian American or Indo-Canadian experience in in, in, ac- in academia, I've never at least personally sensed you know any kind of racism towards me. if anything, we are overrepresented in, in academia relative to our our, our population. but it's pretty clear. So I'm a geologist, and and it, it is pretty clear that the number of African Americans in geology is astonishingly small, and and there could be a lot of reasons for that. Um, whether it's overt racism or it's you know it, it's some sort of self segregation process, I, I I don't know. Um, but but there. There clearly is discrimination in academia, but it, it it's a it's a different type. It's not as overt it, it it would probably be a lot more subtle and and in that sense more problematic um, because the overt stuff is 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 easier to identify and uh, and perhaps deal with, but the, the the subtle stuff the stuff that's unspoken is is more problematic.
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks uh, for that, Tom. Uh, Because you know it's a lens, uh, the academic world, and for that matter, the Canadian world. But uh, you know, it's it's funny for me. I'll I'll keep this one a little brief because it was just an epiphany that just happened, and I I thank you both for you know helping me think through some of these things. But my first job out of college uh, was wasn't at HP. It was at Baxter. uh, a conglomerate up in uh, uh, the north side, uh, northern suburbs of Chicago in, in the healthcare space. My first team there, the larger group, you know, probably about 150 or so folks, um, was predominantly white. But then my small team that I was a part of, there was David, there was Joel, there was Janet, there was Mike, um, all white folks. But then there was Ray, Yomi, and me. You know, Ray was African-American, Yomi was from Africa and had been a graduate student here. And then there's me. It's like, but there wasn't another person of color in our larger group. And all these years, I've never actually thought about that. I've never tried to make sense of it. So, why was it that way? And and I I just felt like I was lucky to be around. So, this is like a little family of mine to like, oh, they're all wonderful people. But there's something else there and I am not going to try to unpack it right now because I can't, I can't quite think of it, but there's something there that is kind of Tom when he said, you know, no overt racism. Was there there anything overt that people are doing? Um, You know, that's that's the opposite of racism. It's activism, right? It's doing something to enable that. So, you're not a racist, but you're also not an enablist, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, just a, a short story. I go back to Northwestern every year because I'm on the advisory board there. And for the past, I've oh, probably been doing this for a couple of decades now. Every year we talk about the pool and every year we talk about the lack of representation from the African-American community. And the Dean hears it every, we talk about it, it never changes. The dynamics of everything else changes. In these 20 years, I've seen the number of grad students come, you know from India diminishing because there's so much more work in India, so they don't come here anymore. And you know, China went up for a while, and then Eastern Europe. But that somehow the pool for African Americans, that's the excuse that we all make. It's just so small. We would hire them if they were there, right? It's like all this stuff. And so you know, I, I don't know how that links exactly to the Baxter story, but there's something there that you know we we just kind of say it is that way, and we uh, and don't necessarily do something about it. So, yeah. So, uh, just uh, maybe I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit to the Silicon Valley. I don't know if it was you, Jake, or if it was you, Tom, but somebody said about the Silicon Valley being diverse. My first experience when I showed up here is this because I came from Chicago, right? Boy, this place is not diverse at all. <laughs> we all think the same way. We all talk the same way. We all focus on the same sort of things. Um, and then we get to that African American equation. And at HP, except for one colleague you know, who became both a dear friend and a client when I started my consulting practice, except for him, I don't remember anyone. In a substantial position of power um, at HP, who's African American. And this is the paragon of the Silicon Valley, and not just the Silicon Valley, but high tech. I mean, the whole world is built off of this wonderful company, the HP Way. I mean, I can go on and on how amazing it is. And yet, we don't have a kind of diversity that we're talking about today in this podcast. We have a different kind of diversity. You know, of course, you know, all these Indians are there, all these Chinese. You go to Cisco, it's like, you know, my God, I can't believe that the cafeteria serves Indian food now. It's like, oh, you know, um, so we have a different kind of diversity, but there's still something really, really missing. Um, and it's not hard to figure out you know, what it is, know, know, why it is, and what know. we do about it is really hard.
0: Uh, thank you for that. I mean, maybe just a comment, and then we'll go to the pendulum years whether it's academia or Silicon Valley, uh, the African-American contingent is missing for whatever reason, right? Silicon Valley might be geography because the Underground Railroad and the Industrial Revolution and the industrial cities of the upper Midwest and all, that was the migration from the South to the North and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, Tech is a different animal. And there may be diversity of races but not african-american but probably homogeneity of aspirations and thought but diversity of races and 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 some of this is naive thinking on my part uh, but i was talking about our experience growing uh in in chicago uh from there we went to boston and it was immediately apparent to our kids now they're they're american they're they're second generation they're born here uh but lexington massachusetts was a a lot more, uh, cos- quote, cosmopolitan than, than Hinsdale. So they started to feel uh, not so much like outsiders, right? And then the culmination of that w- would happen uh, as uh, I was working in Cisco and contemplated a move to Silicon Valley. And I was asking one of my direct reports, and he happened to be an Indian uh, uh, person. And I asked him, uh, good places to 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 live for a family and good schools, etc., he said, "Jake, uh, you will like Almaden, which is a neighborhood of San Jose." Um, so I asked him why I would like Almaden. Uh, he said, "It's it's cosmopolitan." It turns out he was steering me towards Almaden, uh, not Cupertino or Fremont, which are some of the other suburbs here, which have great school systems and because of that have a high population of Asians, whether it's Indians or East Asians. Yeah. Uh, he was telling me, you like it in Almaden because there are white people there. <laughs> and he thought I'd be more comfortable <laughs> with some more white people and not just, Raj, you mentioned uh, ghettos, Indian ghettos. It might be very wealthy, yes, but so ghettos nonetheless. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, boy, America has really changed when an Indian guy is telling me, I would like to go live where there are more white people. Uh, so I, you know, I thought America was progressing, right? Maybe, <laughs> probably a little naively, but but, thought, but that story actually happened.
1: That's great. That's a good story. That's a good one.
3: <laughs> Thank you to Jake Chaco, Raj Oza, and Tom Chaco for sharing their candid stories of growing up and building lives and careers in the US and Canada. In the next and final episode of the Life of the Mind's Race in America series, they will continue sharing experiences and interpretations of America's progress from the election of President Obama to today. This was the Oak Guild Institute's Life of the Mind podcast, where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. We encourage you, the listener, to share this episode with another and start a dialogue. Remember, it's always okay to respectfully and lovingly disagree with ideas and interpretations of events you listen to here or you get from other sources. Through reflection and dialogue, we seek truth and also to live compassionate and flourishing lives. To find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit oakguild.org to learn more about our other efforts to deepen and broaden the conversation.